Yeah, I lost the thread of where we were going with that. But uh, the, oh, the, the West Coast. Mm. Um, yeah, look, it's, it still feels a bit otherworldly. I and mean, it looks otherworldly, mm. which is kind of why it's so attractive and crazy mm. and interesting. And um, the people out here are you know, equally crazy and interesting, you know, and, and, uh, and, and lovely and crazy and interesting. But it also feels wild. And I, uh, it's a bit of a useless word, but it seems to be the word that I keep going back to because... It's far enough away from our main centre. It's remote, and I think remote places, particularly in, well, the ones that I've been to and lived in and, and, and passed through in Australia, have always been the most interesting places. I'm Emily Kyle, and this is Local. This is a conversation recorded with Hobart-based graphic novelist, multimedia artist, and musician. Joshua Santo Spirito. This episode was recorded in July during Josh's residency at the Bank Gallery. Usually we start with what happened when you were born. What was it like coming into the world? I don't know what it was like. You don't remember? No, I don't remember being born. Uh... I don't even know what my first memory might be. Ooh. What would it have been? I don't know. I certainly remember the sandpit in my parents' backyard, but I don't know if that's my first memory. Mm-hmm. I remember finding plastic toys in there from previous children, probably just my brothers and sisters. <laughs> but, yeah, I don't... I, 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 I think being alive is pretty nice, but mm-hmm. I don't know if I knew that to begin with. Yeah. don't know when I decided life was all right. Mm. So where was the sandpit? Camberwell in Melbourne. Yeah. Very dull but pleasant eastern suburb of Melbourne with mm. lots of trees, big oak tree at the base the base of the garden, which used to dump lots of acorns and leaves into the gutter, which always overflowed. So I certainly remember playing boats in the overflowing gutter with the acorns. Oh. That was quite nice. Yeah, it does sound nice. And uh, how big is your family? Oh, I've got two brothers and one sister, and I'm the youngest by a long shot. Oh, so, by how long? Uh, well, seven years, but, you know. Mm, that is long. Um, my sister's 11 years older than me. She's the oldest. And so it was almost like I was an only child, but my parents had well and truly worked out how to be a parent by that age. Yeah. So they kind of ignored me. So I kind of oh, had... Oh, I, mean, I would have thought it, you got the good stuff. Uh, that's that's a common misconception, oh, okay. I think. <laughs> it doesn't quite happen that way. They just assume that you've got everything, so they kind of pretend. Well, they just don't even pay attention. So yeah. mm. I wasn't neglected, but I was, you know, kind of ignored or allowed to do whatever I wanted, which was kind of nice. Mm, that sounds like a good life. Did a lot of drawing. Yeah, so yeah. that's when it started. Do you remember how old you were when you started drawing or started loving drawing? Uh, Mum used to get me tracing paper from the newsagents, and I'd use that to copy pictures of Asterix. Uh, or Garfield uh, oh. or, you know, other comics characters. And then I'd stick, I'd trace their shapes and then stick them up on the wall with blue tack. And so my whole bedroom was covered in lots of drawings of my own, technically stolen from directly, <laughs> lifted directly from comics, greats of the bygone eras. Wow. Mm. So it really did start with drawing and comics. Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. I uh, did a lot of, yeah, mostly comics. Yeah. I don't, Recall. What was the attraction? Was it that there was nothing else available to copy? Uh, I used to go to the library and get like big books of foot, the collected editions of Foot Rot Flats. I think we just had a lot of Asterix comics. My older brothers got given a lot when they were 
young and they were just handed down to me. So it's probably just access. But I used to love it because my dad was a classic scholar. So he um, he knew all of the uh, the explanations to the jokes in Asterix. So I'd like, Dad, why is Cleopatra saying that about eating a pearl in her, you know, whatever the story was? And then he'd explain it to me and then I'd think that the joke was hilarious. <laughs> and then go and tell everyone else the explanation to the joke because they had a lot of in- Historical jokes. You had yeah. to know the history to actually get the joke in Asterix. Yeah. Anyway, so I quite liked Asterix. Yesterday you were talking about uh, your father reading you bedtime stories. Yeah. Yeah, Dad used to read me lots of Greek myths and bits of the Bible because my parents are quite Christian. Um, and Lord of the Rings. Dad always did the voices. And yeah. he, always, he knew a lot about mythology from the Mediterranean you know, the ancient Romans and ancient Greeks and that sort of thing. So um, I think that was kind of his jam and probably what he got told when he was a kid as well. So he just kind of passed it on to me. It's interesting, uh, the idea of passing things on through the generations because I feel like that's something that features really heavily in your work. Mm. Yeah. I I don't know if I fully realised that until a bit later, perhaps my family probably pointed it out to me when I went, oh, yeah, it's sort of a major feature of my work. <laughs> but, yeah, I, um, I've always been kind of interested in uh, the mythology which we all carry in us, I guess, you know, um, probably not it's not a radical thing to point out that in, you know, lots of psychological um, people like Carl Jung and Freud to a, maybe a lesser degree, they've talked about the, the archetypes and, and mm. that sort of thing which is um, we all carry in us, so... Uh, I guess uh, knowing a lot of the stories just from being a kid and being told all those stories, I think it's it's always been something which I've thought was, you know, really sparked off my imagination when I started reading stuff by Carl Jung and kind of going, oh, wow, this is, there's, there's, there's more depth to this and it sort of resonates in our brains even when we're completely unaware of, mm. we may even be completely unaware of the story or never even heard the story, but those archetypes are... You know, yeah. potentially something which we might be resonating or behaving or acting out on, which is kind of crazy thought. Mm. Yes, absolutely. Subconscious behaviour is, um, or unconscious behaviour is very interesting. I really enjoyed your graphic novel, The Long Weekend in Alice Springs. Cheers. This, So you adapted this from an essay. Mm-hmm. What is your relationship to the man who wrote the original essay? I recently stopped, but for about 15 years I was, I'm a, I was a psychiatric nurse. And when I was 25, I started nursing in, in Alice Springs and began working as a psychiatric nurse in remote, in remote Aboriginal communities, which is a pretty weird place to be doing psychiatry. Mm. Um, cross-cultural psychiatry is very difficult, very um, a bit of a minefield, um, cross-linguistically, cross-culturally, uh, and also added the, add in the extra complication of working in a remote location with not much staff. And um, I guess that the, the, the result is you kind of feel a bit um, all at sea, kind of wondering if you're mm. even doing anything useful. It's kind of, you know, when, when some it seems from, you know, coming in from the outside that, uh, life in Aboriginal communities is is conducive to poor mental health, and you walk yes. in, walk in, and offer them, you know, an antidepressant seems a bit kind of a bit stupid, really. So you often, you know, left feeling um, a bit redundant somehow. 
So my boss back then um, put me in touch with, I guess you call it a work psychologist. In psychiatry, they call it a clinical supervisor, but uh, someone who you can touch base with from time to time and talk about clinical issues or work issues or anything that might be bothering you at work. And, you know, in your conversations with that person, you might kind of, um, I guess, become a better uh, a better mental health nurse or, or psychiatrist or psychologist or whatever you may be. Um, and that person for me was Craig Senrock. Um, and he had a very unusual style. He's a, a follower of Carl Jung and uh, a psychoanalyst himself and had, has for many years worked in um, Central Australia. He's a very, he's a very odd man mm. um, and he, he writes things and he used to have this funny habit of just flicking me emails with little attachments of, <laughs> of things he'd written for uh, obscure uh, Jungian journals in the United States or whatever. You know, it might relate to something you spoke about, it might not. It just might be something he just thought might interest me. Uh, and one of those essays that he flicked me was called A Long Weekend in Alice Springs. And I mean, most of it, Craig's writings are fairly visual, but uh, something about that particular piece kind of, I guess, it, it featured the psychiatric ward that I worked in in Alice Springs uh, and also featured some of the Aboriginal communities in Central Australia. So I guess I could picture myself in the narrator's role quite easily. Mm. Um, and I don't know if I necessarily understood the essay at first, but it resonated quite a lot for me. So a few years later after I left Alice Springs with my um, partner at that time, we went travelling around the world and I just started doodling bits of that particular essay in my diary, which, you know, involves a lot of drawings and words and combinations of the two. It's not comics per se, but it has sort of proto-comics, I guess, in it. It's just sort of how my diary tends to look. Mm. And I think I just started responding. So I started writing whole sequences of, of that essay in, in, but I injected a lot of, of my own personal life. Even on the front cover of the book is my old Land Cruiser. Uh, really? Her name was Emily, which was, took me on lots oh, of adventures. But there's, there's lots, of, lots of me in that, in that graphic novel that eventually came out of it. Um, I think after a certain period of time, I kind of realised I was making a, a book. Um, mm. And I showed bits of it to Craig and he, he just said, oh, yeah, keep going. He didn't offer me. Much, much more kind of um, good for input. you, buddy. Yeah, <laughs> he just sort of let me do it, have my way with it, and chopped his words up and reformulated them, and put lots of visuals and um, yeah. And then, uh, but you know, it, it's it's an odd book, and really, I didn't expect many people to read it. I thought it'd be an intellectual curiosity for you know maybe fifty people. Mm. Um, but it but, took off. Yeah, it kind of took off, which. Which was nerve-wracking as well because it, it, it talks a lot about, um, you know, Indigenous Australia, how white Australia deals with Indigenous Australia. And I thought, I thought that that, I mean, that's a fairly fraught kind of topic. Yes. And I, ex I expected the more people seemed to read the book, the kind of the more nervous I got. But mm. seemingly unnecessarily so because uh, I haven't really had any backlash, um, mostly positive feedback, which has been mind-blowing. Well, I think the way that you have handled the intermingling of various stories, um, including your own, in the book, it's done so thoughtfully, mm. in my opinion. Mm, I like to think that maybe that, that, that had something to do with the, 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 the text that I adapted it from. Um, I think Craig's way of kind of exploring topics with an uh, an emotional curiosity or but like an openness which which was a tone which I really responded to when I read his piece uh, and I think I really wanted to I guess um, keep that going and, and not have and that's exactly what it feels like it mm. feels like um, 
an exploration. It doesn't feel like taking a someone else's story and telling it with uh, your voice or his voice. Mm. It, it feels like uh, the stage that the platform is given uh, to the story itself and not to the writer or illustrator. Yeah, I like to think that it's kind of not Craig's voice or my voice, really. It's kind mm. of a, a, a Craig Josh, a Crosh or a, <laughs> or a Jag. <laughs> when I was reading it, I... Um, Yesterday we were talking about how uh, we people understand each other, whether it's through uh, themes or personal stories. Uh, and when so, when I was reading *The Long Weekend* in Alice Springs, I was thinking about a psychiatrist that I spent a lot of time with, or a psychoanalyst that I spent a lot of time with, um, Leon Petchkovsky which I feel like you, who I feel like you might know. I, I've, I've met and worked with Leon in the distant past. Yeah, he used yes, to come out to Central yes, Australia. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, he was um, a really fascinating person. He's good uh, friends with Craig. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so many little connections. <laughs> well, I don't think the psychoanalyst's world is very big in Australia, but yeah. Mm. I uh, Something that he spoke to me about because I, I spent a lot of time with him while I was pregnant. Mm-hmm. And um, we were talking a lot about family and um, when there are disruptions in the in the core family, uh, and then trying to have a family of your own and bringing those traumas and disruptions into the new family dynamic, uh, which was very interesting. I couldn't help but think about that when I was mm. reading this book. Uh, also, the um, we had spoken about his time uh, in Alice Springs of Central Australia, and uh, the really the the violence that, um, especially, I think Indigenous men inflict upon themselves as a sort of coping mechanism. He was explaining to me that it feels like at one point there's there was a lot of violence between. Uh, Indigenous men and other Indigenous men, men and Indigenous women, and a, a part of the healing experience uh, has been that Indigenous men are, have, instead of enacting that violence on other people, they begin doing it to themselves um, to stop spreading the violence, but it's still the same thing, mm-hmm. uh, men being violent towards themselves, treating themselves badly. And that is um, carried on generationally as well. Mm, I think, I mean, it's probably true of all cultures, but mm. a, a form of self-harm is, is, a, is something of a symptom of, of being harmed mm. in the first place or a continuation of that same thing. I just felt that, um, yeah, these memories, my, uh, my personal history uh, with Leon and reading this book, trying to, trying to relate to that experience, um, yeah. It was very interesting. Mm. I had so many feelings. <laughs> I remember being in, um, when you work on the remote mental health team uh, and you have these, these psychiatrists who fly in from other parts of Australia for like a week and they have to go to like three or four different communities. I have a very distinct memory of um, driving Leon and he brought a mate with him almost on a holiday, which I thought was quite odd. And so I was just driving these two guys who were, you know, his mate was a um, a lecturer at a university in, in Melbourne and um, 
was a writer and uh, so him and Liam were in the back of the car and I was driving down this long highway in the desert and uh, they were just yakking in the back and I just felt like I was the Jungian chauffeur and I was just like, <laughs> <laughs> it was a very, very funny experience to have in your mid-twenties just in yeah. <laughs> these sort of elderly white gentlemen sort of talking about the bitchiness of the academic circles <laughs> back in another part of Australia which had no relevance to the, where you were, like oh. <laughs> trying not to roll over on a, on a, on a dirt highway on, the way to, on my way to work. <laughs> it, was, it was a funny man. Oh, it's a very interesting kind of uh, disconnection, like a cognitive dissonance. Ooh. It was great. <laughs> it certainly features in my diaries from that era, but yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> Uh, speaking of your other work uh, or more about uh, what you're doing in Queenstown at the moment, um, The Qual. The Qual? Yeah. Uh, can we talk about that? Can we talk about how long have you been working on this series? I don't know. Uh, I think I think The Qual kind of appeared to me fully formed as a, as a kind of character maybe a year ago. It's a... You know, like a, a, a female um, body with a with a quoll's head, kind of wandering the Tasmanian landscape um, in a sort of a future future Tasmania or a future world um, post-human. Uh, I guess I guess it's sort of you know the the climate apocalypse has sort of been in my brain quite a lot in the last few years, as it has for many people. Mm. Um, and I don't really know what the qual... I don't think the qual is necessarily saying anything, but I think it's sort of an emotional exploration of, um, you know, what, what what the land carries of, of us even after we're gone um, or does the land even need us or even give a shit that we exist, you mm. know, um, and whether or not there's sort of a, a future mythology... And I, I, I purposefully tried to avoid. I think I think after years of making comics, I, I do have a tendency to kind of always try and to to find a narrative. I think I've specifically tried to resist that with the qual, just kind of let it be. These characters kind of wandering the landscape um, of Tasmania. Invariably, though, a narrative does appear, and sometimes mm. it's difficult to push it away once it's appeared. But um, hasn't hasn't quite happened so far with the the qual. But it's just a bunch of, of Paintings and drawings and um, musings, um, often with bushfires in the background or foliage replaced by lichens rather than, mm. you know, trees. Um, that's something that I did find particularly interesting because I, I feel like I've seen fire um, as, a, as an element come up in your work before I mean obviously mm -hmm. it features uh, heavily in the qual but um and now I can't think where uh, I was looking. yeah I've got this other weird side project which I just call sleuth which is kind of an experimental comics kind of um thing and there was there's been a few sleuth is uh, I won't even bother trying to explain it because <laughs> I don't even know if I understand it myself but like there is this sort of character which is this malevolent presence within Australia called old man gum mm, yes. and um and he's kind of the, the kind of vague idea is that there's this sort of conspiracy theory uh, or a conspiracy um, that old man gum has been plotting because he'd been quarantined to 
by by Gondwana to the to the great southern land, but then because humankind migrates between all these countries, this kind of reverse colonization has actually occurred. That were unbeknownst to most humans, who've who've just gone, oh, the gum tree is quite pleasant. Let's just take it back to our native countries, you know. So Italians, you know, or you, if you travel across the planet, you'll just see eucalypts are everywhere. Oh. And uh, he's so infiltrating. He's infiltrating the world. He's going to burn it to a crisp. That's that's old man Gum's <coughs> plan. You know, to break out of quarantine. You know, um, so, just biding his time. Yeah, and eventually it's just going to consume uh, Earth in uh, a big a big uh, bushfire. Um, you know, just kind of riffing, I guess, a bit off um, global warming. But um, you know, that that's kind of a, a thing which. I've had a lot of fun with making comics with old man gum and done sort of weird little performances where I get to like chant old man gum like it's this ancient <laughs> force which we've all just conveniently forgotten. Um, you know, I kind of tied it into, you know, colonisation of Australia being the interruption of the fire farming. Um, you know, Indigenous peoples knew how to deal with old man gum and keep him at bay but but with this modern period that we live in is the great forgetting and mm. you know it's gonna it's gonna bite us all in the butt it's interesting because uh there was a lot of talk about that um indigenous folk uh understanding how to deal with uh bushfires in a way that uh we don't over the last summer which yes was, yeah. yes which is um Quite, quite devastating. There is this aspect, thinking about another conversation I, I've had with a wonderful musician, experimental musician, um, where for her, water is very important. It features very heavily in her work. And, and she too has a mythology. Aviva Indy? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's such a small community. Um, all communities, I think. Small, very small. <laughs> Um, and there's something, so we, we had this beautiful conversation about water, mm. uh, there being uh, no fixed moment, that there's the, the waterfall, there's the, bef the, the, that it's always been coming, that there's the before, you're in that moment, it's coming, and then in the moment it's still coming down, and then in the future moments it's... Um, mm, particularly then, in her work because it's... Very improvised. That's sort of mm. her, her, almost her entire practice is mm. music that sort of just comes within or comes through her almost. Yes, yes. quite incredible when watching her perform. It is unbelievable. Mm. And I, I, I guess um, so I'm, I'm thinking about her and when we think about water, or when I think about water, we think of a, a cleansing, a wash. Mm. Uh, but we also think of this, of, I think people in general think the same thing about fire. You know, cleanse it with fire, burn it down, start again. Mm. It's interesting to think of um, these two almost opposing elements having a similar effect. Sterilisation might be another term for it perhaps. Mm. But, but then if there's plants which can withstand that process, then the rebirth seems to be part of that. I don't know if that's cleansing or not, if it hasn't mm. killed everything or if, if the purpose of cleaning is to be sterile. Mm. You'd hope not because I don't know where I'm going with that, but it was just a thought, Yeah, a fragment of a thought. Mm. <laughs> I feel like that's the only place I exist is in fragments, so trying to keep a, <laughs> an ongoing conversation happening. <laughs> uh, all I can think about now is um, a land before time. 
Oh, yeah, the dinosaur film. The dinosaur film. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because my son loves dinosaurs. And there's a whole... uh, there's a whole thing about this devastating fire mm. and it comes through and at the end of the movie you learn that even though the tree is burnt, it, it continues on. It, it's, um, it's not, it will regrow. It's not completely, it's not actually completely dead. Huh. I can't remember how that movie went. I saw it when I was a kid too. Well, there's the first one. Um, That's the first one. Where the mother saw. dies and oh. Okay. But then there. The tree one's in a later film, is it? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So, uh. We were also, we did touch really briefly yesterday on a narrative happening in your music, the music you play. Yeah. I guess I have a general philosophy. I mean, I also play improvised music, which, and, you know, make it up on the spot. But, you know, invariably I find themes or pieces of music, which I've used before, sort of um, take on a new form Mm. um, within whatever I'm playing on the spot. The thing I always strive for, though, is to not just use those pieces as the end result, the end point. Um, I don't I sort of feel like, often in experimental music, you know, because of the nature of it being an experiment, someone mm. comes up with an interesting sound and then just performs that that fragment. Um, but I, I always find that a little maybe disappointing or I, mm. I don't feel like I've been taken anywhere. It's, it's a curious sound and it's quite, you know, it's often joyful to listen to, but... I'm always left with that, okay, but then what kind of feeling? So I always want to be told a, a story or taken somewhere. So I try to always progress. Mm, there's like the difference between what is sound and what is noise. Yeah, or what is m- music, though I don't know if I've ever explored that word to any great <laughs> length, so I don't know what the answer might be. Someone like Aviva would be far more capable of answering that or at least having a stab at it than I would but and so I I, I think at least in my brain there's there's a an obvious connection between the stories in my comics the narrative in paintings and performance of Mm. music and I often try to combine visuals with you know projected or still um, images with with music because it's a bit like story time for adults. Um, yeah. And it tends to um, bring new things to all of the different mediums when you kind of mix them all together, especially when you're in a space with the person performing them. So, And I think even if you did something extraordinarily abstract, and I've tried this in the past, um, where you haven't necessarily decided on what the narrative might be, so you just like cobbled together a bunch of stuff and whacked it all together, and people go, oh, that was really weird, but people... The, the weirder it is or the, the more, the further apart the, 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 the threads are, you know, the, the, between all of the different elements that you brought together, people seem to draw the connections themselves anyway. It's yes. people, people want to find the yes. story and, and, and say, oh, you were doing this. And I'm like, oh, oh really? Was I? Is that what you brought to this? <laughs> I have no, never would have dreamed of that. I wish I could think of an example of some of this weird stuff that people have said to me in those circumstances, but nothing's going to come to me right now, but. Yeah. Well, I do, yes, I do think that that's a really interesting point because sometimes it feels like when you're making a work and you're putting it into the world, the less you say, mm. the more a person will find. Yeah. There, there's a there's a, a mechanism which often gets talked about in the comics world 
from almost to death, actually, um, <laughs> the, 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 the psychological concept of, of closure. Mm. Uh, so you have two images, you know, you might have a picture of a cow and then a picture of a plate with a knife and fork and you just put them next to each other. And, of course, the people who view it, especially if they're reading a comic and they know they're reading a comic, or if they're reading an infographic, they'll understand intuitively that you're trying to tell them beef or something like that or a steak or something like that. Mm. Um, so, But you haven't drawn a picture of a steak, so people automatically make that link. And, that, and that's, that's a mechanism which I think is very, very important to comics because what happens between the images is all in the reader's mind and you don't want to pull those two ideas too far apart, otherwise the reader has to work too much mm. and then you, they kind of get frustrated and... And often that happens with experimental, weird, indie, art house films. There's <laughs> people are like, I don't understand what's going on. But um, but comics tends to lean on that mechanism more so than other mediums, but it's still intrinsic to all the mediums. But, yeah, I, I think having, you know, done majority of my art practice in comics, I think I'm a little bit attuned to trying to find the balance between how far you can pull things apart and not lose people. But mm. but uh, when I've been more weird or experimental with it, humans' capacity to try and find that pattern recognition or mm. that, that it just seems to always... Yeah, they want the gaps filled. We want the gaps filled, I think. Mm. Um, are you a board game player at all? No, not so much. No? No. I am not either, but I'm learning because I want to learn. And I was taught this this game called Codenames. Right. And it's a series of um, cards with words that are laid out in front of you and there's one person, it's sort of a, a team game. So one person has a map of what words are the words they want you to pick mm -hmm. and they have to come up with a word that ties these specific words together uh, so that you'll pick the ones they oh, want okay. you to pick. And that I, that's all I was thinking about when we were talking about um, comics and the, the plate and the, yep. the steak is, yeah, everything, connections, connections are everywhere. They're everywhere. Everything is related to everything. <laughs> yeah, especially when humans are involved. Mm. But I, perhaps what I'm trying to explore in, well, it's not, it's not a major theme, but something which I wonder about when making the qual is what happens when there is no humans, whether or not there is any connections. Um, when the world mm. exists, we assume, after we've gone but in mm. some shape or form. Well, I mean, in, in practice, there's connections. If I, in, I think, obviously, you didn't ask me to tell you. But um, tell me. <laughs> I I think about there's this vine and I I, I don't know what it's called, um, but it's a very it's a very strong vine, and the way that it survives is it will uh, wrap itself around a tree and it forces its little uh, stingers mm -hmm. into the tree, and it feeds off of the, off the tree. The sap of the tree? or Yes. Yeah. It gets right in there. It's so strong. Eventually it will kill the tree. Mm -hmm. But um, it's, it's like a little parasite, but it's so strong. And um, 
so the, the tree is getting the nutrients through its root system and, you know, the sun, mm. and then it's giving it to, and, and then and the vine is taking it. There's, um, I don't know if it's, I mean, that's a bit of a nasty one, but there's a relationship happening. It's not necessarily symbiotic because the uh, vine is not giving anything to the tree, uh, but there's a relationship happening. And if the connections are, in my mind, anything, they're relationships. But I could just be talking shit. <laughs> no, I like that. The connections are relationships. They may, yeah. I'll have to think about that a bit longer. But... <laughs> so uh, one, one thing I really did want to talk to you about is, um, is I guess it's the premise of the podcast, is your relationship to place. Because mm -hmm. it in all of the, the zines that I've read and your graphic novels, place seems to feature as if it's another character, as as if it's a as if it's a character in the story. You know, mm. when we're talking about your relationship in um, Swallows to the building, you know, that um, story of your family history in the building. I guess in my mind, I guess I'm, I mean, I've lived in a few places and I guess I'm always trying to triangulate uh, maybe who I am, but doing it in, in, in relation to the places that I've passed through. I think maybe, maybe in modern Australia, we're all a little bit mm. grappling with who we are. Um, I think the growing awareness amongst mainstream Australia of, of Indigenous Australia's history, I think, is, is probably also putting that into a, a particularly, um, like, a, a strong kind of focus. Like, mm. um, and, you know, and rightly so, I think that's something that we probably need to think about. Um, but, you know, me as an individual, I'm trying to think about that. I'm trying to think about um, who are we all in the spaces that we are exist in, in this land. And I guess... The long weekend in Alice Springs, I guess, was really about all of Australia. But, um, you know, just using Alice Springs, where I used to live as a microcosm. And I guess whilst I was living there, I was busy trying to think, well, who the fuck am I in, <laughs> in this space? Like, it's a bizarre question. And then, you know, making another book, Swallows Part 1, and, and I've been working on Part 2, you know, to try and figure out who I am as a, as a migrant Australian and what stories have I brought with me? What connection do I even have to mm, Italy? Yeah. If any, do I have any? I don't. I mean, or you know, when people see my surname, Santo Spirito, they go, oh, where are you from? And I'm like, well, grew up in Camberwell in Melbourne. Mm. I don't really even feel Italian. Um, but everyone says, oh, you're Italian. And, but, you know, that would be a comical thing to say to an Italian. Say, I'm an Italian. They'd laugh at me. I don't even speak very good Italian. And mm. clearly I'm from Australia. So, and then I feel like, I've moved to Tasmania like 12 years ago and I don't really often feel Tasmanian, but I'm in this landscape and trying to figure out what it is and mm. who am I in relation to it. And, it's yeah. interesting this connection within Australia to uh, states mm. or even breaking states down into different parts of the state. You know, do, am, I, am I Tasmanian? Um, am I a West Coaster? Mm. Am I an East Coaster? What's, you know, and I... I think that I share that uh, confusion, um, not confusion, but 
I, I'm, I'm not sure that that you're talking about because because my my family, my extended family, they they travel. We've just travelled within Australia, but my entire life was spent in all all the different states around Australia. We were never really in a place for a long period of time, mm. and then I I continued that with my son. Where I was saying to you yesterday that he hated, and now we're here, and I don't feel like. You know, I spent some time, uh, a lot of time in Queensland, uh, but I don't feel like I'm a Queenslander. I don't feel like I'm, I relate to Western Australia. I don't feel like I relate to, um, you know, Byron Bay, Northern Rivers area. I don't feel like I, it's not. And to say I'm Australian seems like the thing that I should say. Do you feel displaced or do you feel at home in moving from place to place? I, see, and I, I don't think that I feel displaced, mm-hmm. but I, I I don't feel like I own wherever I am. It doesn't, it's not, and it's not even, it's interesting because it's, I'm trying to figure out this, uh, this doesn't belong to me versus I don't belong to this. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I think it's formulating the question that's the hard part mm. and answering it, but. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Mm. But place, but place means something. Mm. Mm, I, I don't know what that something is, but no. like it, it, it has. Yes. A lot of meaning, but yes. and and it's really fun to explore. I I but I don't. And every place has different meanings, and certainly different meanings to different people as well. Hmm. What is your what is your connection or feeling to the West Coast and Queenstown? You've been here a number of times, and you hmm. keep coming back. Well, I definitely feel as a visitor. I'm not I'm not from here, and that would be. An odd thing to say. Does it feel familiar to you yet? Yes and no. Mm. Um, when you when you visit, you, you have all, I mean, I'm always aware that you know you only see things in a very superficial way, mm. much like a tourist, you know. But the more you visit, I guess, the more you kind of know some of the nooks and crannies, and but you don't know the stories. Mm. Uh, and I think that's the difference between living somewhere. That's the difference between being born in a place and hearing those mm. stories. I mean, I grew up in Melbourne, but I haven't lived in there for, I don't know, 17 or 18 years. And I've known some Tasmanians who've gone to live in Melbourne as adults and then come back to Tasmania. And I speak to them about Melbourne and I can tell straight away the way they talk about Melbourne, they they didn't grow up there. Mm. And I think that's a curious thing. I'm writing a book at the moment about Sydney and I'm acutely aware that I didn't grow up in Sydney. <laughs> I have lived there, but I am I'm not someone who grew up there. And so I'm just... I just don't know how and in what ways I will betray the fact that I'm not a native Sydney person <laughs> in in that book. So, so that's 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 a weird little kind of thing I have to think about. But maybe I don't know what the answer will be. So I should probably just get that neurosis off my back and just yeah. finish the bloody book, you know, and just <laughs> something I probably can't control completely. But uh, you know, other than just getting lots of people with Sydney-born people to put their eyes over the book. Mm. And tell me where I went wrong <laughs> before I publish it. But um, yeah, I lost the thread of where we were going with that. But uh, the, oh, the, the the West Coast, mm. um, yeah. Look, it's it still feels a bit otherworldly, I and mean, it looks otherworldly, mm. which is kind of why it's so attractive and 
crazy mm. and interesting and um the people out here are you know equally crazy and interesting you know yeah. and and, uh, <laughs> yes. and and lovely and crazy and interesting <laughs> but it also feels wild and i uh, it's a bit of a useless word but it seems to be the word that i keep coming back to because it's far enough away from a main center it's remote and i think remote places particularly in well the ones you know been to and lived in and, and, and passed through in Australia have always been the most interesting places. Intriguing. Yeah, and I think they have more interesting stories or more unique stories. Mm. I think the main media centres of the world and Australia and, you know, like, you know, the countless stories about New York and you kind of know the flavour mm. of a New York yeah. story. So they become a bit samey after a while and I think there's something more crucial or something more Australian the more remote you get or, you know, even though the idea of it being Australia is um, probably more untrue when you mm. go remote because there's so many so many differences or regional voices or, you know, aspects to story which will be wildly different mm. the more remote you get and the more samey they are sound when you go to Sydney or Melbourne or... Um, I mean, most people would be familiar with the Tim Rinton story from Western Australia now, even though he, his voice goes up and down the coast of Western Australia and all of his books. But, um, but I don't know if many people would be familiar with a, a novel set in Western Tasmania. You know, mm. maybe Richard Flanagan's book set on Sarah Islands, probably the a, a relatively famous one. Was it Gould's Book of Fish? I can't remember the title now. But um, mm. I couldn't help. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, mm. I don't know if that answers the question. I meander a bit when I talk. No, it's good. I enjoy it. Um, so that's what keeps you coming back, the stories. Yeah, I think so. I don't know if I know a lot of the stories yet. but Well, you'll have to keep coming back. Okay, sure. <laughs> this has been lovely. Yeah. This has been really nice. Is there anything that you haven't said that you would like to say? About your work, about yourself, about your dogs? I don't know. I don't think so. My dogs. Um, they're wusses. They can't mm. stand the rain in Queenstown. They don't like getting wet very much. Oh, it's I mean, like, too much. Yeah. yeah. Luna loves getting into rivers and stuff, but she doesn't like rain, which I think is kind of comical. But she does have a very thick coat, so I don't know why she prefers getting fully immersed in the river. But maybe it's a choice thing. You choose, Maybe it's you choose an to, all or nothing thing. Yeah, she doesn't like the the bitsiness of getting a little <laughs> bit moist from 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 sky water, when she likes river water. But yeah, I'm not sure if they've kind of figured out Queenstown yet. Especially, we've been staying in the Cubank Gallery inside the gallery space, which is right on the main street. And as people walk by and talk, mm. I think the dogs, of course, they're not in their home environment. They're just not used to the sounds. So immediately they start barking as soon as anyone walks by, which is driving me mental as I'm trying to paint in, paint in the gallery. But do, as, uh, as far as stories go, I do. I, um, I was happy to realise that I had uh, met you and your partner and your dog Luna before. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I remember Luna, uh, and when I uh, pushed the door open to the gallery, she was right there and she didn't, there was no barking. She just, she looked at me and I looked at her and we had a little moment and I said, where You remembered you? each other, obviously. Obviously. <laughs> and I said, where are your people? And she just, 
started walking through the gallery and she's just <laughs> leading you to the people. Yeah. 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 And then she's is like it my secretary. Bobbin? Yeah, Bobbin. Bobbin. Yeah. And then Bobbin comes out and all, all hell breaks loose. <laughs> yeah, Bobbin's a work in progress. <laughs> uh, do you have anything um, upcoming that you want to plug? Where can people find you? Well, they can find me on, on the internet. You can just type in whatever variation of my surname you'd like to spell, but it usually leads you to the right place, joshuasantospirito.com. And there's like um, you can jump on an email list and that way you can stay in touch. I think um, hopefully I'll have a, an exhibition in Melbourne at some point with the paintings that I do here in Queenstown, and, uh, but that's not locked in stone. We're still figuring out the post-COVID world Ooh. and what that looks like. So, um and then probably within the next year, I'll hopefully have another book of Swallows Part 2 out, which was which is a lot of fun to write because it was a lot of my family in it. It's sort of the premise is me and my parents go on a trip to Italy, to the islands where Dad's family come from. So there's a lot of family gossip from the 1960s and oh, bickering. That. And I really enjoyed writing the script of my family. <laughs> it was very familiar and I just kind of take the mickey out of all of them and also myself and it was just whilst on a, you know, sunny Mediterranean island filled with, you know, bitchy locals. Mm. You know? <laughs> it was uh, it was it was very fun. So I hope hopefully that comes through and it's enjoyable to read. But did you say sorry when it's coming out? Oh, uh, I don't know yet. Um probably in the first half of next year, twenty twenty one. So Great, I'm yeah. excited. Yeah. So am I. It's gonna be. It's quite funny. I, well, I think. I think it's funny. But then, of course, it's mostly my family, and you know, and when you, you know they're funny. Well, their brand of funny. Yeah, I, yeah. That's banter. I think <laughs> you know when you know people so well, you you riff off each other. I don't know if anyone else will find it funny. Mm. You know when you see siblings bantering, and you can't quite get into their rhythm, or they're they're in a zone, and they're just yes. they're just going for hell for leather. It may be a bit like that. So the book may be a disaster. I'm not sure. <laughs> or, you know, it'll feel like, you know, a bit a bit voyeuristic looking oh, maybe. through the peephole into someone else's life. And seeing people push each other's buttons. Mm. That's kind of fun to watch. Yes, it is. <laughs> yeah, hopefully it'll be like that. Mm. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much for doing this. Oh, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Thanks, Emily. This was Local. The podcast is produced by Carter Pierce and myself. Digital media is produced by Tess Gilfeder. Our artwork was made by Gigi Gortz. The podcast is funded in part by the Regional Arts Fund and the Unconformity Festival. It's not, it's not a major theme, but something which I wonder about. For more information on the podcast and its guests, please go to localthepodcast.com or localthepodcast on Facebook and Instagram.